It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 807 for the 26th of August, 2022. This week, here are some opinions. Always shoot in raw mode. Never shoot in raw mode. JPEG is just as good as RAW. JPEG severely degrades photos. All right, both modes exist for a reason, and it's not an always or never decision. Let's consider the advantages of each format. In short circuits, if you've ever tried to tell someone where you are when no street address is available, you'll immediately see the advantage of using the What Three Words app on your mobile phone. When you've grown tired of SeaCleaner's constant requests for a $30 annual upgrade, you could pay or you could choose to use an open source program. Let's consider that second option. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2002, home and small office computer users were beginning to learn about green screen technology commonly used in broadcast television and motion pictures. Some photographers are adamant that camera raw is the only format to use. Others are equally adamant that JPEG is a better choice. Who's right? Always and never are two terms that I try to avoid. Never say never would be an oxymoron, but it's not a bad thought to keep in mind. Excellent reasons exist to use your camera's raw format, but there are also excellent reasons to use the camera's JPEG format. Let's take a quick moment to establish a few basics. Most digital cameras and even some smartphones can capture and store raw images. These are files with extensions such as CRW, CR2, and CR3 for Canon cameras, ARW for many Sony cameras, NEF for Nikon cameras, and DNG for several other camera manufacturers. With the exception of DNG, each of the RAW formats is proprietary. That means no photo editing application other than the one provided by the camera manufacturer can edit those files directly. DNG is an open source format. Few cameras can save files in TIFF format, but a few do. And regardless of the camera manufacturer, RAW files are always far larger than JPEG files. Although there are other formats for digital images, my primary concern here is the proprietary RAW formats and JPEG. Formats such as TIFF, PNG, GIF, BMP, and JPEG are primarily choices for outputting finished work. So JPEG can be used for the original image and to output the final cropped and edited image. Besides the physical size of the file, the primary differences between JPEG images and RAW images from the camera is that the RAW file is simply an unprocessed record of every bit of data from the camera's sensor. So it's up to your photo editing application to make sense of that data and to convert it to an image. JPEG files have been converted from the RAW image in the camera and provide a finished, ready-to-share image. Both RAW and JPEG files will have the same dimensions. 
So there was the first clue about which file format is the right one for you to use. Those who want complete control over their photos will probably prefer raw format, even though it means they will have to spend more time preparing the images. Those who prefer being able to share images quickly will generally want JPEG files, even though the editing options are limited. When I said proprietary RAW files can't be directly edited except by using software from the camera's manufacturer, I was speaking the truth, but perhaps not the whole truth. Applications such as Adobe Lightroom, Photoshop, Exposure, and others cannot manipulate RAW files, but they can interpret them. When you modify the exposure, color, contrast, or any other aspect, the application writes information about those changes to a catalog file in Lightroom or to a sidecar file in Photoshop, Exposure, and most other applications. Lightroom Classic can write a sidecar file in addition to saving the information to its catalog, and turning that option on I think is a good way to retain your edits if the catalog is ever damaged or lost, or if you decide to stop using Lightroom. Because the Digital Negative Format, or DNG, is open source, anybody can create a photo editor that can directly manipulate those files. Lightroom Classic can import proprietary file formats, or it can convert them to DNG files. There are advantages to converting to DNG if you choose to use RAW files for some or all of your images. DNG was created by Adobe as a potential standard RAW format for all manufacturers. Some manufacturers have adopted the format, but several, Nikon, Canon, and Sony, for example, have not. Files maintained solely in proprietary formats have the potential, however slight, to become unusable if the manufacturer goes out of business or drops support for the format. Converting the images to DNG eliminates that danger. Some cameras can't create both RAW and JPEG images simultaneously. Load both of these images into your photo processing application and you may be surprised. The JPEG image will probably look better. That's because the camera has applied sharpening and limited color exposure and contrast adjustments. The RAW file is just the RAW file. Most photo editing applications do apply some basic adjustments when RAW images are loaded, and these are often good starting points, but RAW images will still generally look flat and lifeless if you turn that option off. So why exactly is the RAW format the better choice for those who want to have full control? When the camera creates the JPEG version, it discards a lot of information from the RAW file. Instead of a 30 megabyte RAW file, you'll have a JPEG file that's 5 megabytes or smaller. That's why JPEG is referred to as a lossy file format. JPEG images can be manipulated by photo editing software, but the modifications are severely limited. I used the option to create both RAW and JPEG versions of each image on a Sony point-and-shoot camera for a little experiment. There are three settings for JPEG image quality, standard, fine, and extra fine. I chose the highest quality. There are also three choices for size, 5 megabytes, 10 megabytes, and 20 megabytes. I selected the largest file size. RAW files captured by this camera are typically around 25 megabytes. I used the camera's capability to store two copies of a single image to illustrate that whether displayed on a screen or printed, it is virtually impossible to tell the difference between a JPEG file and a RAW file. 
That's a generalization, and it presumes that the JPEG image hasn't been manipulated extensively. Full control and better final images are almost always possible when the photographer starts with a raw image, though. But JPEG images are the right starting point for those who simply don't want to spend time manipulating the images and who plan to use the images for social media, email, and small prints. If you want extensive options for processing and manipulation, the RAW format provides it. You'll see a couple of images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a cornfield from near where my older daughter lives. One is a JPEG image created by the camera. The other image is a Sony ARW file, a RAW file, after it's been converted to digital negative format. You won't see a lot of difference between the two, because Adobe Lightroom applies a bit of sharpening and some other effects to RAW images on import. If I would turn those conversions off, the raw image would appear undersaturated and low in contrast. But again, there is not much difference between the two files, even though the raw file is much larger. The difference is apparent when the raw image is manipulated, even slightly, to improve its appearance. In this case, I wanted to reduce the brightness of a stone driveway, increase the threatening appearance of the sky, and add more drama to the image. The JPEG file, straight from the camera, is certainly a decent snapshot, but having a RAW file allows the photographer to create the best possible image. The modified RAW photo emphasizes the stormy sky and reduces the bright white gravel driveway so that it's less likely to be the primary component that the viewer sees. Given a bit of additional time, I would further darken the gravel driveway and possibly add some contrast to the sky. This is art, after all, not science. When the image looks the way you want it to look, it's right. And there is no always or never in art. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, Fear Movie Lions is both a beer and a location. A double IPA, actually, from Stone Brewing. I thought the name was odd when I bought some, and likewise the punctuation with periods between the words. As it turns out, those three words tell me exactly where the beer came from. Because this is not a podcast about beer, I had to find a technology link. Fortunately, there is one, and the app What Three Words can be useful when you need to share your location. Let's say I'd like to meet someone at the corner of Broad and High Streets in Columbus, Ohio. Like many intersections, there are four corners, and it covers a relatively large area. I could be anywhere on any of the four corners, or even in the middle of the street. Now, standing in the middle of the street might attract just a bit too much attention from the Columbus Division of Police, so I would stand on the sidewalk. But which corner? And where on the corner? Instead of saying broad and high, I could specify my location as clown, demand, rushed. And that narrows the space down to a single three-meter square on the northeast corner. 
If you're not into metrics, that's about 10 feet by 10 feet. Stone Brewing chose Fear Movie Lions because the location is about in the middle of their East Coast brewery in Richmond, Virginia. The whole concept may seem silly, but it's a quick and easy way to provide a precise location without having to use latitude and longitude numbers. My preferred location at Broad and High Streets can be described as clown demand rushed. That's pretty easy to remember. Certainly, it's easier to remember than 39.962554330903049 North Latitude and 82.997936843424344 West Longitude. Which of those would you be more likely to remember? Three words, definitely easier than latitude and longitude, even if you truncate them to 39.96 and minus 82.99. Once you know which three words define your location, you can save it or share it. The person you send the link to can navigate using City Mapper, Google Maps, Bing Maps, or Waze. City Mapper looks like it's primarily a European service with limited coverage in the U.S. The others provide coverage in most of the United States. The developers have assigned every three square meter spot on the planet with a three word code. This includes open water in the mid Atlantic. One three-meter square there is called Collapsing Scarcity Settles. And the What Three Words headquarters entrance in London is Filled Count Soap. When used on business cards and printed media, the company recommends prefixing the words with three forward slashes, so slash 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 filled dot count dot soap. Navigation systems in vehicles might be easier to use if the driver could say three words that indicate a precise location. The company says small businesses could help customers find the store easily, get more accurate delivery locations, and enable workers to locate assets and work sites quickly. Now, admittedly, my examples so far all using a desktop computer are a bit silly. It's questionable whether anyone would ever really need more precise directions than the northeast corner of Broaden High. But what about places without addresses? A grocery store that my wife and I use for online shopping that we pick up moved the pickup location from one end of the parking lot to the other. There were no signs at the old pickup location, so finding the new location took a bit. Using the three words Twigs Sugars member would have immediately directed me to the right location. Or consider a location such as a long-term parking lot at an airport or a large parking area at a sports complex. Using the What Three Words app on a phone could capture your current exact location. Then sending Spoon Olive Skill to a friend would direct that person to your precise location. Once you have a location, such as Fear Movie Lions, you can have what three words transfer the location data to your preferred navigation program. So, if I wanted to drive from Columbus to Richmond to buy a six-pack of FML IPA at the brewery, I could send that location right over to Waze. Jaguar, Land Rover, Mercedes, Mitsubishi, Ford, and Subaru are among several auto manufacturers that are experimenting with the technology. DHL and EVRI parcel delivery services in the UK can use a what three words address instead of a standard street address. Some TomTom GPS systems recognize the addresses. Hundreds of organizations are considering or using the technology right now. To download the app for an Apple or Android device, visit the appropriate app store. For use on a desktop computer, notebook, or tablet, use the What Three Words website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, 
www.techbiter.com. Cleaner used to be free. It was a handy little program that located and deleted temporary files and other junk that accumulates on Windows computers. It also offered to examine the registry so that incorrect or unnecessary entries could be removed. Then the utility was acquired by Piriform, and then Piriform was acquired by antivirus maker Avast. Today, the free version is little more than a way to tell users they are idiots unless they pay for CCleaner Pro at $30 per year. Maybe you don't like this approach and wish there were other options. Bleachbit is such an option. It doesn't clean the registry, but registry cleaners can cause problems. The application can examine specific applications to find and remove extraneous files. It's free, and unlike many applications, it doesn't try to install any extras when you use it. The first time Bleachbit runs, it examines the computer to locate applications it knows about. The user can then select cleaning options. Cleaning Firefox will eliminate backup files, cache, crash reports, document object model storage, site preferences, and history. You have complete control over what it will remove. It will also correct any database fragmentation and will offer to remove cookies and saved passwords. You'll see warnings if you select either of those options because you may not want to have cookies and passwords removed. So it is important to read the notices as you set Bleachbit up. After establishing which operations to perform, it's a good idea to preview the function. This will report in great detail exactly what the application will do, along with how much disk space will be freed and how many files will be deleted. If all appears good, proceed to the cleaning operation. The final step is a list of what Bleachbit actually has done. There may be differences between the preview and the final results because a running application may have deleted one or more temporary files before Bleachbit has a chance to delete it. All of your selections will be remembered, so you don't need to perform the full setup the next time Bleachbit runs. Initially, the utility may not recognize all of your applications. My primary browser is Vivaldi and it wasn't listed. The community of users provides help for this situation. Open Preferences and select Download and Update Cleaners from Community. The next time you start Bleachbit, it'll download the current WinApp2.ini file, and you'll see a greatly expanded list of applications. This free utility offers additional functions not found in CCleaner. It doesn't bug users to buy a paid version, because there isn't a paid version. And the user community provides information for more than 2,500 cleaning operations. Better still, it is surprisingly fast. For more information or to download the utility, visit the Bleachbit website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. No upgrades are required to read 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In 2002, home and small office computer users were beginning to learn about green screen technology commonly used in broadcast television and motion pictures. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>